When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of What I Think of You by Ash G, a singer-songwriter from Columbus. Ash is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, stoke that fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and researcher, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. On August 12, 1896, the steel bars of the Richland County Jail in Mansfield clanged shut on a 24-year-old woman who had just been arrested and charged with murder. A few miles away in the little cemetery yard of the Pleasant Valley Congregational Church. Freshly overturned soil marked the site of three new graves, her victims. It had taken nearly two months to put this puzzle together. Now all that was left to be done was decide the fate of a clearly disturbed girl who had wiped out her family. This is the story of Celie Rose. Celie and her brother Walter were the children of David and Rebecca Rose. David and Rebecca married in 1855 in southern Ohio's Highland County, and David served with the Ohio's 63rd Infantry Regiment during the Civil War. After the war, the couple moved with their two young children to Richland County's Worthington Township, a beautiful vista known as Pleasant Valley. David Rose bought nine acres, built a pretty cottage, and erected a flower and grist mill. He did well for years, until syndicated process mills priced him out of competition. By 1896, David was in his late 60s and supporting his family by chopping feed or making cracked wheat and hominy for his Pleasant Valley neighbors as well as cultivating whatever he could grow on his small farm. His son, Walter, was 31 years old and unmarried. He lived at home and contributed by peddling small goods. The mom, Rebecca, kept house with the help of her daughter, Celia, 
whom they called Celie. Rebecca made woven goods to sell, and she taught her skills to Celie, including how to sew and embroider. The family had lived in Pleasant Valley for 17 years and still acted as outsiders, even though their various occupations put them in contact with many families in the area, they kept to themselves. Townsfolk came to see David and his son Walter as the kind of men who resented interference of any kind and frankly quick to temper, though they were never considered dangerous. The nearest neighbor of the Rose family was George Berry, who lived with his wife, two sons, a daughter, and his aged father. The Berries were the complete opposite of the Roses. They were outgoing and friendly. Their farm was prosperous, and they never quarreled with anyone. But there was an unspoken tension between the extroverted Berries and the introverted Roses. Even though David Rose's mill was within 20 yards of George Berry's front porch, the two men hadn't spoken to each other in five years. If they passed on the road, they barely acknowledged each other, if at all. Celie Rose was a puzzle to the simple country folk where she lived. She was a loner, preferring to play by herself on the banks of the brook or building dollhouses in the woods for hours at a time. But she was also described as large for her age, a little plump, and as such prone to taunts from bullies, which probably explained why she preferred to be alone. She went to the local school, although not regularly, but did develop a love for reading. She read everything she could get her hands on, from books to the newspapers her father brought home. As a young woman, she did attend a couple of local dances, but never caught the attention of the community's young men. Rather than be a wallflower, she stopped going altogether, and the only time people saw her in a social setting was when she went to Sunday school. But Celie Rose did have her eyes on someone, her young neighbor, Guy Barry. Guy was 17, Celie was seven years older, but she was smitten. One day, while he was plowing the cornfield, Celie seated herself on top of a low fence and began chatting with him. She talked about how lonesome she was and what a handsome young man Guy had grown up to be. Guy was taught to be polite, and he accepted the flattery, but continued plowing hoping Celie would be gone by the time he returned from the other side of the field. But Celie was patient. She returned day after day to talk to Guy, and he kept up his part of the conversation until Celie made the declaration that the two of them would marry as soon as Guy was old enough. Guy tried to set Celie straight and began to avoid her. His 12-year-old brother, Claude, also tried to discourage Celie, telling her that Guy had a girlfriend and was already taken. Then I'll marry you, Claude, Celie told him. Claude mentioned this conversation to his mom, and Mrs. Barry told her husband, George. Guy admitted to his parents he was tired of talking to Celie, and if she kept pestering him, he would probably have to leave home. 
And so George had a rare conversation with his neighbor, David Rose. He told him about the talks over the fence and that his sons had grown uncomfortable around Celie and that Guy was even threatening to leave home because of it. And though Rose's pride was surely deeply wounded, he agreed to talk to his daughter and put an end to it. Mr. Rose admonished Celie, and when Mrs. Rose and her brother Walter learned of it, they reproached her as well. Celie was embarrassed, and life at home had now become unbearable. She soon came to the conclusion that the only thing really standing in the way between her and Guy Barry was her family, and the long-standing, though silent, feud between her household and the household of her beloved. She committed to doing something about that. The morning of June 24th, Celie helped her mother prepare breakfast, which included a plate of cream cheese. Her father and brother had heaping portions of it. Her mom, less so. Celie didn't touch it. Within an hour, David Rose was vomiting and deathly pale. Walter left the house to go find a doctor, but he was feeling ill himself. He collapsed in the middle of the road. A neighbor found him and got him home, then fetched a doctor. Meanwhile, Rebecca Rose was feeling poorly herself, but not nearly as bad as her husband and son. David Rose suffered in agony for six days before he died. Walter lasted another five days, then died himself. Mrs. Rose was bedridden, but getting better. Almost from the start, suspicion had fallen on Celie. Area physicians compared notes and believed the symptoms matched arsenic poisoning. And the fact that Celie wasn't sick raised eyebrows. Who else had access to the family's pantry? Even without anyone suggesting this to Mrs. Rose, she sat up in her bed one day as if she had put it together. She told her daughter, Celia, could you have done such an awful thing? God help you if you did. Still, when authorities questioned the two women who had survived the poisoning, Rebecca Rose protected her daughter. She told them she had no idea how the poison could have found its way into the food because she alone had prepared it that day. Then, in the quiet of one evening, she told Celie they would leave town as soon as they could. But Celie objected. The love of her life was next door, and she was not going to leave him. Rebecca recovered and was soon on her feet again, but then suddenly she took a turn for the worse. She fell ill again on July 19th and died the next day. The county coroner, Dr. Bauman, held an inquest. Half a dozen doctors weighed in on the contents that were found in the stomach of David Rose and agreed it was arsenic. Celie was brought in for questioning. She denied knowing how the poison had gotten into the food. The county prosecutor, Attorney Douglas, asked a neighbor, Mrs. John Oler, to take in Celia while the investigation continued, and Mrs. Oler agreed. Meanwhile, 
the prosecutor came up with a plan. The only schoolmate Celie had ever had a relationship with was a girl named Teresa Davis, and he enlisted Teresa's help in getting Celie to confess. Teresa rode out to the Oler's house to visit Celie and offer her condolences. Later that afternoon, as the girls laid on the sweet-smelling hay in the barn, Teresa gently tried to get Celie to unburden herself. The girls met for several days, each time their conversations getting deeper. One day, Celie asked to visit her family home, and Teresa accompanied her. They walked past the cemetery where the freshly turned earth over her family's graves was still visible, but she only glanced at them briefly without comment. They sat down on a big water-worn limestone rock next to the road by the little red brick schoolhouse the girls had once attended. Teresa asked her again if she wanted to tell her what happened. Celie said she would think it over and that Teresa should come back the next day. Teresa did, and that day Celie began sharing the story of what she had done. On August the 12th, Celie was arrested and charged with three murders. At first, Celie said she put the poison in the cream cheese at the order of Guy Barry. He'd told her to do it so they could be together. But the next day, Celie said she regretted implicating Guy, that he never said such a thing. And then Celie came clean. She said she found some rat poison on a shelf in the pantry and put it in the pepper box. When she was in the spring house, where the dairy products were kept, she sprinkled it on the cream cheese she'd gone to collect for the family's breakfast. She said she didn't eat any of it and tossed her portion out to the chickens when she was cleaning up afterward. Eight chickens died from that meal. On July the 19th, after hearing a doctor say that her mother was out of danger, Celie got the pepper box, which she had hidden. She sprinkled it on some bread and in some milk her mother was preparing to eat. She was determined that her mother would not make her move away. Celie said her mother knew something was wrong and commented that the food tasted funny. But inexplicably, even with her own suspicions, Rebecca Rose finished eating and drinking the contaminated meal. Almost immediately, she began vomiting. Unremorseful, Celie told the prosecutor she could hardly help laughing that her mother had fallen for that so easily. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Celie was given two attorneys, Elsie Mangert and I.M. Reed, right. and family belongings were sold to pay for their services. The sale at the Rose House was attended by crowds from surrounding towns and hamlets. 
Sitting in the jail in Mansfield, Seely waited for her trial, spending her time sewing, embroidering, and reading the Bible and novels that they brought to her. To anyone who asked, she would talk freely of the deaths of her father, mother, and brother, and would blush and laugh when someone asked her about Guy Berry. The general consensus was that Celie was neither stupid nor insane, but seemed to lack the ability to tell right from wrong. As one reporter put it, her moral sense, if she had any at all, was defective. A reporter from the Chicago Tribune, who wrote a lengthy story about the whole affair, described his visit to Seeley. He wrote, She had on no shoes or stockings and was clad in a coarse black woolen dress with red bands in the bodice. Her thick, neutral blonde hair was done up in a neat knot, and the front curls were in papers. She did not rise when addressed, but let her pamphlet drop and leaned forward long enough to adjust her skirt. She made no apology for her lack of shoes. They were tucked under the cot. Miss Rose has blue eyes, a straight but thick nose, delicately shapen ears, a large mouth, rosy complexion, and a fine rounded head, neck, and chin. Her eyes are expressionless, even when she laughs, which is not infrequent. Her laughter is not silly, nor momentarily timed. She did not laugh while one was talking about the death of her parents, but was likely to in the next breath, if she thought anything at all amusing. She talks intelligently about what she has read, but seems to be deficient in her ideas. Her memory is retentive, and her stock of facts is larger than that of the average reading woman. When asked directly if she were sorry, she said without looking up, Of course I feel bad and all that. I am all alone. Seeley's trial began on October the 13th in the courtroom of Judge Wolf. The coroner and two other doctors testified to the cause of death. Teresa Davis testified about Seeley's confession. In the end, the jury deliberated just an hour before deciding Seeley was innocent by reason of insanity. Seeley was sent to the Toledo Asylum. In 1915, she transferred to the new Lima State Hospital for the criminally insane. She died there in 1934, a day after her 61st birthday, and she's buried in the hospital graveyard. The home where she poisoned her parents and brother, where they took their last breath, is still standing and part of Malabar Farm State Park. From time to time, ghost hunters have been invited in and have left satisfied that the home is haunted not only by the three people who were murdered there, but by their killer as well. Now, I mentioned Malabar Farm in the last episode we did called The Remarkable Life of Phoebe Wise. Phoebe lived 13 miles away. She was a few years older than Seeley and died the year before Seeley. Phoebe and Seeley may have been contemporaries in Richland County, but otherwise they only had one thing in common. Both were immortalized by the owner of Malabar Farm, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Louis Bromfield. Bromfield was a cousin to Phoebe Wise, 
and had met her when he was a youngster and became so inspired by her, it motivated him to write his novel, The Wedding Gown. Bromfield did not know Celie Rose, however. He was born after the murders. But when he returned to Richland County after a lifetime of adventure, he purchased a whole lot of land that included Celie's house. He wrote a book about his return home. It was called Pleasant Valley, and he devoted a chapter to what neighbors had told him about Celie's story. Now, those secondhand recollections were largely wrong, by the way, in case you read the book and wonder why so many facts are different. But an interesting thing Bromfield said, for the purposes of this still being a mystery, is that locals told him Celie said she had visited her house after she'd killed her family, and she knew her parents and brother were haunting it. Well, if anyone's house deserves to be haunted, sounds like this is a good one. So I remember from our last episode, you promised to give us some guidance for an exceptional day trip to Malabar Farms. You're right. I did. I've done this trip twice, and it is a great way to spend a day. As I said, Malabar Farm is now a state park, and the state maintains the house where Louis Bromfield lived. You can see a study where he wrote some of his books. You can see the stairs where the silver screen stars Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall got married and the bedroom where they spent their honeymoon. The place pretty much looks the way it did when he lived there. The park has a visitor center and a gift shop. And the Seely Rose House is also part of the state park. Now, the inside is only open to the public during rare special events, but you can view the, the modest exterior anytime. There's a great old cemetery on the property, for those of you who like that sort of thing. It's small, but the gravestones go back a couple of hundred years. That's always fascinating. Also, at the spot, there are a couple of scenes from the movie Shawshank Redemption. They were filmed here. The opening scene where Andy is looking at the cabin where his wife is having an affair inside, that's here. You can drive right up to it. And the scene where Morgan Freeman's character goes to the tree in the field to retrieve the money Andy left for him, that's here too. Although a storm knocked the tree down about five years ago. That tree has its own Wikipedia page, so you can at least read about it. Now, while you're there, you can also take a drive up Mount G's. It's a circular road that goes round and round all the way up to a lookout point where you can see the beautiful rolling landscape of Richland County. Very much worth your time. And then, to finish it off, go get a bite to eat at Malabar Farm Restaurant right across the street from the park. Really good food. But it also completes your history tour because the restaurant is in a two-story home built by a frontier family in 1820. Wow, 1820? I don't think Ohio has many 1820 homes left. No, that's 201 years old. And that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Now, more about our featured Ohio musical artist of the night. Ash G is the performing name for Ashley Graham. The last time we featured her a couple of years ago, she was a 16-year-old girl living in Columbus with the goal of pursuing a career in Nashville as soon as she graduated. And guess what? 
she's in Nashville. She just turned 18 and took that leap of faith. Now, this past summer, she released a new song called What I Think of You, and it features Trez Gregory. She's a backup singer for Brooks and Dunn. All of Ashley's songs are really about her experiences as a teenager, i.e. evolving emotions and boys. And when she wrote this song, it was too high for her to sing in parts of it. So she got Trez, a family friend, to join her on the record. And Ash said the result was an almost mysterious sounding song, which of course makes it perfect for us. Now you can follow Ash G on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll find her music on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So here's the full version of What I Think of You by Ash G. Turn up the volume, enjoy, and we'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.